Our text this morning is the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. If you'll stand with me, let us hear now the word of the Lord that is infallible, sufficient, and authoritative. 1 Peter, chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again, to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would meet with us this morning in your word, that you would teach us, that you would encourage us, that you would exhort us. O Lord, we thank you for your word. May you make it ever more precious to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Have you ever tried to describe something to someone that you have found of great personal benefit? And it's new to this person you're talking to, or maybe they're just experiencing it or they haven't experienced it yet. It might be something like this. You may be talking to people who are engaged and thinking of getting married, and you're describing to them the wonder of married life. And you may be doing it in a context where milk is spilled by the kids and there's things going on in the house and it's kind of scattered and you're trying to describe describe really how good marriage and raising a family is. You may be describing to someone who's starting out their first job how fulfilling it is to do hard work and to see product on the end of it. to to get the the feeling of satisfaction that you get, that you've put in a good day's work and you've done something that's of benefit to you and to others. And they may not get it. The Apostle Peter is doing something a little like that this morning. He is describing for these elect exiles and for you and for me. He is describing what it is like to experience salvation. What the work of God is in His life and in their lives. And how great a salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. You see, what Peter is about to do is to give a lot of good practical advice on living to people who are in a tough spot. We've talked about that in past weeks. And he's going to begin to do that. But in typical New Testament fashion, before he gets into the, this is what you need to do, he's going to give them some teaching and say, this is who you are, and this is what you've experienced. Therefore, you should do this. And so what he's going to be doing in the next several weeks that we look at this, 
actually down to verse 12 of chapter 1. This whole section from verse 3 to verse 12 is actually one big long sentence. It's one big long description of the work of God in the lives of believers. Believers in the first century, believers in the 21st century. And what he's going to describe for them and for us is what it is like to have salvation from God. And there are three components that he goes through here in the section that we're looking at. He talks about salvation with hope. He describes the great hope that comes with salvation. Then he describes salvation that comes with an inheritance. An inheritance that we get with our salvation. And then he describes salvation with preservation. Now, I want you to know as we go through this that it's not just 21st century preachers that like to do things in threes. You'll notice that very often we have three points. Peter's very fond of threes. He's been talking about salvation, and he's going to be looking here, I want you to have in the back of your mind, that really in verse 3, the focus of salvation is the Father. And then in verses 6 through 9, he's going to be focusing on the work of the Son. And then in verses 10 through 12, he's going to be focusing on the work of the Spirit. So this is a natural division. But what I would like us to do this morning is to look here, beginning at verse 3, and to see as Peter describes the first of this triad with salvation, namely that we are saved to a hope. We have salvation with hope. He says, in his great mercy, he has begotten us again, or we are born again to a living hope. And the first question that I think we must ask is, what is hope? I think that's something that we have lost sight of a bit today. Oftentimes, to modern man, hope is something that's fanciful. It's hoping against something against all odds. We might think of it this way, that in society, people hope they win the lottery. They might hope something good happens to them. They're not really expecting it. It's just something that might come down the pike. But that's not biblical hope. Biblical hope, I think, has been well-defined by a man who described it as disciplined waiting. That's what hope is. Hope actually expects what's going to come. It's awaiting it. And it waits it in a disciplined fashion. You know it is going to come in Our passage this morning, Peter is describing how you know your salvation is coming. And we have great hope because we are waiting for a sure thing to arrive. We might think of it this way. A soldier has hope. He's disciplined. A soldier in an army expects to be victorious. When he doesn't, when he ceases to have this kind of hope, morale breaks down and defeat is often inevitable. But it's not just a willy-nilly hope. Soldiers don't walk around going, oh, I think we're going to win. No, they're disciplined. They're in ranks. They're ready. They have their eyes on the final goal, but that doesn't distract them from the present either, from their duty that's before them. Another example might be the farmer. A farmer has hope, disciplined waiting. He plants, and he expects the harvest. But he doesn't go around without thinking, doing random acts. No, he's disciplined about it. He knows there are certain things that need to happen along the way. 
that in a disciplined fashion he needs to water. He needs to weed. He needs to cultivate to get to that realization of the hope. It's a disciplined waiting. Hope is also something that you wait for that is not present. The Apostle Paul puts it in a very short and pithy fashion. He says, if we already have what we hope for, then we don't hope for it. For we possess it. And that's true as well. And that's true of our salvation. There's a a very biblical way of looking at the Christian life that could be described simply in this way. Already, not yet. We are already in possession of our salvation. But we do not yet know it in our fullness. We already know the Lord Jesus Christ. But we do not yet have fullness of relationship with Him. You see, we hope for our salvation. We hope for the consummation, the full expression of our salvation, we might say, using Paul's language from Romans 8. Hope is a discipline waiting. Hope is a discipline waiting for something in the future that's not present. But hope does something else for us. It steadies us. Have you noticed that? That hope calms you. Even in something as mundane, when you're a bit skittish about the bank account, and you hope for the next paycheck that's going to come. It calms you. You say, everything will be okay. We'll fix that. Hope steadies us. This is a biblical way of looking at life. It's what we find in Hebrews 6. That we find that hope is a steadfast anchor for the soul. Does your soul feel like it's drifting around aimlessly this morning? Are you worried about your salvation, or your family, or if God loves you. Hope that Peter describes here is an anchor that keeps your soul in place. It calms you. It keeps you out of the raging sea. It keeps you in the safe harbor. This is hope. And then the second question that comes to us, once we have an idea of what hope is, is why have hope? Why should we have hope? The world will say, well, you Christians are pie-in-the-sky people. You believe things that are irrational, and you do it to protect against fears you might have. Not Peter. I've said it once or twice. I'm going to say it a couple of dozen times through our series here that this is a very practical man. He's a practical pastor. He's a fisherman by trade, right? It's very easy to tell whether you're having success in fishing. You look in the boat and you see how many fish are there, right? It's not something vague. It's very practical. And that's the kind of man that Peter is. And he says, I'll tell you why you should have hope. You should be hope because of who the Father is, who God is. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the one who has begotten us, who has caused us to be born again to this hope. Who is this God? Well, notice what Peter says. He is blessed. Now, this word here is a very interesting word. It actually is both an action and a quality. It's sort of a verb and an adjective for you grammarians. He's saying, I want you to bless God the Father. But the reason that you bless God is because he is blessable, if I can coin a word. He is worthy of blessing. The word here is The word that we get 
eulogy from. It's the same word. It's actually just transliterated into English. Now, lest you go somewhere where you shouldn't with eulogy, eulogy means more than simply saying nice things about someone who's dead at their funeral. That's where it's used most often. But eulogy is simply a Greek word that means to speak well of or to bless. You speak well of someone because of the quality of who they are. And God is described as one who is blessed forever. Romans 1, verse 25. God is blessable because of who he is. He is blessable in himself. He is the only one that is good that is good forever. God, because of who he is, his very character is blessable. This is the one that exhorts us on to hope. The one that gives us hope is not only good and blessed, he is also described how? As a father. It's not just blessed be God. It's blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's important to have these words. It's important to have these relationships because God is one who has a family relationship to the one that he gives hope. Do you notice that? You don't have hope because of a master that you have. You don't have hope because of a kindly friend that you might have. You don't even have hope as some in the world do, thinking that God is some sort of kindly grandfather figure. You have hope because God is your father. You are his children. He cares for his children. This is the one that gives you hope. And this is important too, as we'll think in a a bit about inheritance. I want to give you just a word picture to understand how this works. It's one thing to have hope of an inheritance from someone that you know. It's another thing when a family is involved. You probably have this some sort of way in your family. You have some sort of family heirloom. It might be a ring. It might be a brooch. It might be a book. It might be a painting. Something that's been passed down through generations that your grandfather or grandmother had. And perhaps in some of your families it goes back hundreds of years. And your parents might have said to you, We want you to have this ring when you grow up. We want you to have your grandmother's diamond ring because it's part of the family and it's a family heirloom. And it shows not only that this thing is yours, but that you are ours. You are a part of our family. You may say that to your children. Look at this. You see this book? This book was owned by your great-grandfather. You see the writing in the margins? That's his. Someday this will be yours to take care of and to pass on to your son. This is the kind of inheritance. This is the kind of hope that we have. It's one that is in the the context of a relationship with a loving father. And Peter reminds us that this relationship is firm and steadfast because the relationship is linked to God being not only our father, but the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, because God is Jesus' Father, He is our Father. Our relationship to God doesn't depend on us, it depends on Jesus' relationship. It doesn't depend on what we do or who we are, it depends on what Jesus has done and who He is 
It's a firm and steadfast hope. We also can have hope because of this Father, because He is, as Peter says, abundant in mercy. Our translation says, great mercy. We might translate it overflowing, abundant, abundant, abounding mercy. You see, God is not stingy with His mercy. He doesn't say, well, I see that you have committed 463,000 sins. I'll give you mercy for 463,000. And so on. And so on. No. God abounds in mercy. For so much as sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. God is lavish with His love. He is lavish with His mercy. And that should provide us with hope. Day to day. Abounding in mercy, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, when he describes in that great passage about how we have forgiveness of sins and how we are begotten again and how we have faith as a gift, he says it's because God is rich, abounding in mercy. This is who God is, but we also see that we have hope because of what God has done. Peter says this is the one who has begotten us again, who has caused us to be born again. We can look back and see what God has done for us, and that provides a surety of hope. He's not only begotten us again, He has resurrected the Lord Jesus Christ. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see... It's good old-fashioned Bible comfort to know, as the hymn we sang, Jesus lives, and so shall I. Because Jesus is risen, I will rise also. That's a sure hope. You just look and see the risen Savior, and you say, what God has done, He will do. Because of what He has done for Jesus, He will do it for me. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ shows that God has power. You see, oftentimes, the enemy attacks us in subtle ways. God doesn't have enough power to save you. You're too wicked. You're too bad. You're not fervent enough. You haven't read your Bible enough. You don't pray enough. Your sins are just a little bit too wicked. No. That's not true. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave shows us that God has great power, that God has defeated death. And it is a declaration, Paul says in Romans 1, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that He is, as Peter says, our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection is proof positive of that. That's why the resurrection is such a cardinal doctrine of the faith. It's a source of great hope and comfort. Well, what kind of hope is it that we have. Peter shows that this hope is a living hope. That should evoke some sort of image in your mind. Perhaps some of you are gardeners. And you know the difference between living plants and dead plants, right? There's a big difference. You see, something that is living grows. This hope grows in us because it is alive. We have more hope today than we had yesterday. We have more hope tomorrow than we have today. 
But it's not just that it grows in us, it causes us to grow. It is a hope that causes us to grow and mature in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it is living, it is alive, it has the quality of making one alive. And it's not just alive in the sense of growing, it's alive in the sense that it's not false or vain or dead. It's the difference between what the Old Testament says over and over again, between the living and true God, and vain and dead idols. You see, if we look at it that way, if we look at those who have hope because of a piece of wood, or a stick, or a piece of gold, or silver, and those who have hope because of the living and true God, that's the same difference between the hope of the Christian and the hope of the unbeliever. But it's living now. It's not just something in the future. Your hope is something that affects you right now. As you go through difficulties this morning and this week, the Lord is working on your heart, pointing you toward His grace, pointing you toward the hope of your salvation, that it is alive in you. This is hope in our salvation. But Peter says it's not just that we have something that is to come, something to look for, a hope. He says we have salvation with inheritance. He says we have been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. What is this inheritance here? Well, first, if we get the idea that this inheritance is foreshadowed, Peter's not using this word just because he can't find a better word, or just because it sounds neat. The concept of inheritance goes throughout the entire Old Testament. It's used, depending on the form, somewhere between 150 and 200 times in the Old Testament. It's used something like 60 times alone in Numbers and Joshua, constantly describing the inheritance of the people of Israel. We saw a little picture of that in our reading from Exodus 6, that God would give the land to the people of Israel. And that inheritance was very concrete for the Israelites. You know, it's those passages that when you go through your daily Bible reading, you kind of flip through quickly. And to the tribe of Benjamin, this place, that place, the other place. And to the tribe of Dan, this place, that place, the other place. And to the tribe of Naphtali, this place, that place, the other place. Right? But it's very concrete. It's very real. Peter's drawing on that for a specific reason. Because what Peter is saying is, if you thought that kind of inheritance was real, it's nothing compared to the inheritance that the believer in Jesus Christ has. Your inheritance of salvation is real. It is tangible. It is as tangible as the land that Israel inherited. It's just not visible and physical. But it is real. In Israel, though, their inheritance was not secure. All of those passages about which land they had were all for naught when they went into exile for disobedience. But you see, here we have an inheritance from God because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, it's different. And it's so different that Peter does something that we need to really understand. Andrew talked about this in a sense of what the Eastern Orthodox Church does in terms of theology and 
Now, it's not that Peter's Eastern Orthodox, but there is a sense in which when we talk about God, he's sometimes very difficult to get our arms around. And so we define him by saying what he is not. For example, we say that God is infinite, which just basically means he has no boundaries. Why? Because we can't understand what it would be like to have no beginning and no end. We don't have any other experience of that other than God. So we say God is one who has no boundaries. We say God is immortal because we have no experience of a being that has no beginning and no end. Everyone we know has a beginning and has an end. And so Peter does that as he's describing this inheritance. He says, let me tell you how great this inheritance is. It's so great, I can't even really describe it for you. I'm going to tell you what it's not. The first thing it's not is, it's not corruptible. It's not perishable. He says it is imperishable. What does that mean? It means that your inheritance cannot die. It cannot corrupt and fade away. It cannot be like the treasure that moths and rust destroy. You see, around us everywhere are things that are perishable, that are corruptible. Even things that we think are very solid. The best wood that we can find that's treated. Silver or gold that tarnishes. Metal that over time stresses and breaks. But you see, salvation isn't like that. It is something that is completely and utterly imperishable. And it's not just that it's a little bit better than what the world has. Some of you may have in your home, maybe in a closet or maybe in your bedroom... A thing called a fire safe. You know what a fire safe is? Kids, it's a fire safe is a box, usually about this big or maybe this big, that you put valuables in, like birth certificates, the deed to the house, important personal papers, heirlooms. And it's kind of like the black box on an airplane. You know, like when the airplane goes down and blows up, the black box is all that's left with the recording information? We sort of wonder why they don't build the whole airplane out of the black box. Well, it's the same reason we don't build the whole house out of the fire safe, right? It's something that we we trust will survive in a fire, even if the house doesn't. But you know, fire can be hot enough to burn through fire safes. You can make a fire hot enough that will just completely destroy the best fire safe on earth, right? It's just a matter of getting the fire hot enough. That's not what salvation is like. It's not just better than what the world has. It's completely other. It cannot be destroyed by the most powerful forces in the universe. It is completely imperishable and incorruptible. It never grows old. It never weakens. Some of you children will realize that, and you young people, as you get a little older. You even get to be my age, and you do something, you go, oh, I could have done that maybe 15 years ago, but not anymore. Right? As we get older, we sense a degrading in our skills. Not with salvation. It's also something that is undefiled. You know, one of the reasons that our salvation is incorruptible and imperishable is because it is completely pure. It is undefiled. There is no deformity at all in it. It will never taint. It will never disappoint. Now, understand that. 
it's not just really good. It's not just mostly pure. It is completely undefiled. Some of you may remember of old days, the advertisements for ivory soap, right? 99.94% pure. Now, with soap, that's pretty good. But sometimes, if you look at it from the other direction, you think, well, but that is 0.06 something that's really bad. Right? How many of you would eat a dinner that I said, this dinner is 99.94% not poisonous? (laughs) No. I think this is 99.98% radiation-free. No. You see, our salvation isn't like that. It's not just mostly. It's not just very good. It is completely undefiled. In a sense, our salvation is like Jesus. For Jesus is called undefiled or pure in Hebrews 7, verse 26. Same word. Just as Jesus is, so our salvation is. It's not only imperishable and not only undefiled, it is unfading. It doesn't fade away. It's not like everything else around us. Peter will talk later on in the chapter about how all things fade but the Word of God. Have you ever, guys, had your wife buy you a really sharp colored shirt? Right? It's a real good, bright blue or bright green or sharp red. And you love that shirt. And you wear that shirt maybe every week. Right? And so it goes in the wash. And it goes in the wash. And it goes in the wash. And after a while, what? Not so sharp anymore. Not so bright anymore. Even if you use the detergent that says, fight's fading, right? It still fades. It still fades away. Everything around us is fading and perishing, except our salvation. Except the Word of God. Except Jesus Christ. All of these things linked together. You see, our salvation retains its vigor forever. It never gets weak. It doesn't fade away. And this is an inheritance that is kept. All of these things, if we wrap them up in a bundle and put them in a sack, they are kept, Peter says. They are reserved in heaven. They are kept in heaven for you. Now, There's a sense in which when we read those words, we might get negative connotations from that. That our salvation is kept in heaven. Our salvation's off there somewhere, and we have to wander around for a while hoping that we can get to it. That's not what Peter's point is. Peter's point is this. How many of you would desire to have your salvation, your eternal salvation, in your pocket? Hmm? If you're anything like me, you say no thanks. Right? Perhaps you've had this experience. Things that are really important to you, like your wallet or your keys. And perhaps you've had the experience that I've had where you walk around the house going, where is my wallet? Who took my wallet? Where are my keys? Or maybe if some of you don't wear glasses all the time, but you have bifocals, you're going, where are my glasses? And someone says, uh, 
Oh, they were on top of my head. You see, we lose things all the time, even things that are really important. Our salvation being kept in heaven means God keeps it, and it can't be lost. You can't lose it, because it's in God's hands. God has you and your salvation in in his hands. It is glorious, because everything in heaven is glorious. That is the salvation that we have. And it is ready, Peter says. It is a present thing. The verb tense here is what's called a perfect tense, which means that it is something that is already done that has present implications. You see, our salvation has already been prepared, and that affects us right now, today. You see, our salvation is not just about what is to come. It is ready and prepared and kept in heaven for us. And that's our final point. That our salvation is not merely one of hope, not merely one of inheritance, but it is one that comes with preservation built in. You see, preservation is not an add-on. Like when you go to the tire store and they ask you, do you want to add the accident protection plan? Or when you cannot get out of Best Buy or Office Max without them trying to sell you the product protection plan for an extra 30 bucks. No. Preservation is not an add-on to salvation. Some think it is. But it's not, Peter says. It comes with salvation. Because your salvation is something that is kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. You see, our salvation is preserved by God. It is guarded by him. This is an actual military metaphor. In the Bible, this word is used to describe troops that guard a city or wardens that guard a prison. It is a watchfulness. It is an insight. It is a preservation. It's like I've heard tell when you go to the Tower of London to see the crown jewels. And there are guards there for the jewels. They're not sitting around eating Jesus. They're not taking a nap. They're there at attention, right? And I'm told that as you're there and you're looking at the crown jewels, if as the line is moving, if you stop and dally a bit, they say, move along. They're on guard. They're protecting. It won't be lost on their watch. This is what God is like as he guards us. It's a guarding metaphor, but it's also a protecting metaphor. We are guarded from sin, Satan, and self. God guards us. And this is a great comfort. It would be a great comfort to these Christians here who are experiencing difficulty and persecution. It's a great comfort to you. As you go through the difficulties of life, have hope knowing that God guards your salvation. That he who never sleeps nor slumbers is in charge of guarding your salvation. Think about the power of God in preserving it. It's God who protects our salvation and guards it, not us. How worried we would be if it was up to us to protect our own salvation. But this is God. How could anything that God created be more powerful than God to take our salvation away from us? It can't be. 
You see, this is the problem with bad theology. It has consequences. If we think that we have to protect our salvation, we're gripped by fear. We're gripped by helplessness. But if we know our salvation is secure in God, it takes us out in evangelism. It takes us out in the mission field. It takes us out into the world with confidence and hope. Because we're relying on God. But this is not something that is completely apart from us either, because the means that is described of God guarding our salvation is our faith. We are being guarded through faith for salvation. Faith, that is, the gift of God. It's something that God gives to us. He manifests His guarding of our salvation through faith. That means that our actions are important. It also means that our faith itself is secure. Because it is the means that God uses to completely guard our salvation. So we need not fear losing our faith. It's God's means to accomplish God's ends. And it's something that happens until the end. There is no gap of salvation. It is being guarded until the last time, Peter says. There's no gap you've got to jump over. God is guarding you from beginning to end. It's not that God gives you a head start and He's with you as you raise your children up until teenage years, and then it's like, on your own, buddy. Or I'll give them two, three years of marriage, get, them, get their feet on their ground. Then they're on their own. No. God is there from beginning to end, preserving, guarding, governing. And this is a comfort. Are you uneasy about the future? Perhaps a job situation, your marriage, your children, your grandchildren, your neighborhood, your country. You see, there's great comfort to be found in this passage. There's great comfort to be found in focusing on the work of God in salvation. Because it's as Paul said, he who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Not might not should, will, that God will perform it. You see, God gives us the grace not only to know Him, God gives us the grace to persevere. It's often been said that that fifth point of Calvinism, the perseverance of the saints, would be better entitled the preservation of the saints by God. Because our perseverance is found in the work of God. It's not something that God leaves off and He gives us a good shove and hopes we make it all the way down the road. No. God is there preserving, governing, guiding us. This is the salvation that God brings to us from beginning to end. It's a salvation of hope. Of hope for today and hope for tomorrow. It's a salvation of inheritance that we possess it now, that we have blessings now but we await an inheritance that is beyond anything we can imagine. It's a salvation with perseverance and preservation that no matter how hard life gets, no matter what else happens to us, that we can lose our health. We're not promised in the Scriptures perfect health. That we can lose all of our money. We're not promised in the Scriptures money all the time. We can lose our homes. We can lose our friends. We can lose loved ones to death. The scripture doesn't promise us these things in perpetuity. But it does promise us salvation in perpetuity.
This is something that we have from beginning to end. This is the kind of salvation that we have. And I trust that you, like me, like those elect exiles in those Asian provinces, are stirred up to love, to obedience, and to joy because of what Peter is describing. There is a reason why Peter is doing this. He's doing it, not just for their benefit, but for yours as well. He wants to point out to you the greatness of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's not just for others. You may notice one other thing. If you flip through the book of 1 Peter this afternoon, there's a lot of yous. Peter makes a pretty good preacher. He says, you, and you, and you, and you. But here is one of the rare occasions where he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, this same Jesus that I know, this same Jesus that preserved me, this same Jesus that restored me, does these things for you. And if you think about it, I don't know that you could imagine a sin that would be worse to commit than denying the Lord Jesus Christ as he lived in his greatest hour of need. And Jesus still lets Peter call him Lord. He still preserves him and gives him hope. And so that is something we can find comfort in as well. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have blessed us through this word from Peter. We pray, Lord, that you would grant it to us to know this salvation you have given to us. That we might glorify you and say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.